Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello everyone, welcome to Kernels, I'm Christopher Hooten, I hope you've had a good couple of weeks, hope you've managed to kind of get away from all the insanity going on around the world, you know, get into a nice dark screening room or in your dark bedroom with a laptop or an iPad and just kind of watched a film and pretended like everything's okay. It's been, a, it's been an exciting week or two for me, the film I've been working on is kind of nearly there now, just, well, kind of, it's just shy of a feature film really, about 60 minutes and uh She's got most of the VFX back, which is exciting. I say VFX, it sounds like a too grandiose a term. It's really just the people text messaging and using social media, just kind of recreating that on screen. So it was nice to be able to put that in. Um, also an exciting week, you know, because I threw out all my socks and bought just the same pair like 21 times. And honestly, I can't recommend this enough. Oof. You know, you just get up, reach into the drawer, whichever one you pull out is going to work. It's saved hours of my day, and yeah, it's been a it's been a huge week. So I guess recently with the the film editing that I've mentioned has got me thinking about film editing in general, and also thinking about the other parts of film production that we don't really talk about much. I kind of been it's been niggling away at me for a while actually, not just with the podcast, but with all the kind of film journalism I do that we only ever talk to directors and actors in this profession, which seems crazy. Like, it's definitely got better over the years. You know, way back in the day, in the classic Hollywood days, all you ever heard from was, you know, these big leading actors. And then kind of slowly but surely, people started to become interested in the directors just as much so, if not more. And then very, very recently, people have started to, you know, be interested in who's the director of photography, you know, who's doing the cinematography on a film. But kind of beyond that, you never really hear from anyone. So not every week, but in over the next few weeks and months, here and there, I want to try and hear from more kind of below-the-line people, whether that's crew members, people in post-production, pre-production. And that could be anyone from just just a grip on set, just an electrician. They've got stories, you know, people who are script supervising or kind of overseeing sets. All of these little pieces of the puzzle that people are in charge of that are all super important and I think super interesting. So we're going to kick that off this week by talking to a film editor. You know, it's not a role we really think about much, but it's it's so hugely important. It's can you know kind of the one of the biggest pieces of the filmmaking process. And rather than being hundreds of people on set, it's literally just one. Or you know sometimes there's a few of them together, a little team in a room, putting all the takes together and seeing what works and moving it around. And you know should we use this take? Should we use that take? How much of this take should we use? Cutting them down, working, finding out what works, what doesn't. It's a really creative job. It's an efficient job, but a creative one. So I kind of wanted to geek out with a film editor, really, but I hope it will be of interest. I think it's it's someone you don't hear from often, and I think it might kind of give you a different insight into how all these films that you're watching are put together and might make you think a little bit differently about them when you're watching and maybe appreciate things you hadn't noticed before. The film editor I chose, I was looking down the list. Uh, 
the academy have invited a whole load of new members recently. I think it was uh, last month in June. And they're always subcategorized by, you know, their profession. So you have the, you know, the new actor intake, the new director intake, right down to kind of like hair and makeup. And obviously everyone votes for their own profession. So amongst that, there was a list of film editors who from now on will be voting in the Oscars for the best film editing in other films. And one one of them on the list was uh, Molly Stensgaard, who has worked on a few different kind of TV movies and movies, but is best known for her work with Lars von Trier. So, you know, she's worked on Dancer in the Dark, Woman Started Bjork, she's worked on Melancholia, Nymphomaniacs Volume 1 and 2. And they're, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Lars von Trier's work and they're interesting films to edit because it's it's so much about tone, you know, it's not like editing an action scene together where it's just like boom, boom, boom. The, the editing of it really makes the film and makes, gives it the impression and the feeling and the atmosphere that it does. So we caught up, we talked a little bit about how she became a film editor and really just kind of got deep down into the process as well, you know, from from start to finish, all of the uh, the elements and obstacles and what it looks like, what is there, what is sat in front of you on the computer screen when you're editing a major film. So Molly's based in Copenhagen, so we couldn't do it face-to-face, so we uh, had to make this one work over Skype, which means uh, the, the connection was good, but, you know, there's the occasional bleeps here and there, bleeps and bloops, but... Hopefully you'll be able to hear what both of us are saying. So I hope you enjoy our chat and uh, I'll see you in a fortnight for our next episode, which I think is going to be Ethan Hawke looking that way. Hi, Molly. How you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I want to talk a bit about like film editing and the kind of the role of it and what makes for good and bad film editing in a bit. But um, first, I was wondering if you could just kind of tell me how you got started in film. Um, I actually started right out of high school. Uh, I accidentally met my uh, an, an old uncle who who uh, who needed an assistant. So I think I had uh, this idea that I wanted to do something creative, but I wasn't sure what. So I kind of stumbled into it and worked as an assistant for almost five years before I uh, applied to film school. So I did various stuff, assistant stuff. So it was, it was, yeah, coincidental, but anyway, not right because I had some ideas about something in that area. But I'm not one of those who sat in the cinema as from ten years old and knew exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Do you think you're quite atypical in that respect? Do you think a lot of film editors did have that experience and started out, you know, dreamt of being a director, or they just kind of fell into it like you did? I think it's a mix. I think that uh, most people who thinks about what they uh, that they want to do something with film, they they uh, consider a director or DOP maybe. I think editor, you have to to work yourself towards and and uh, find out what's going on in that corner in the dark room. It's I think not many young people uh, start up with that idea from the beginning that they want to to edit. Were you always um, part of the post process or did, did you originally, were you doing jobs on crew as well? I did. I did production work in the beginning. I was runner simply in the beginning. And then I did some production uh, work. That was quite normal at that time that the females, they went to the production department and the boys went to the lightning and camera department. That was automatically at that time, I think. So, so I did that for some years, and then I started working as a uh, director's assistant and then moved towards the editing room in the end. 
of that period. And then I applied uh, at the Danish Film School. You apply uh, very specifically for editing or directing or so. At that time, I had decided what I wanted to do. Because there's a stereotype, isn't there, that like the grips and the lighting guys are always these kind of big, burly men with beards. I don't know. I'm guessing it's less the case now than it used to be, but I I hope so. I hope it's changing. I can see at least I can see that more and more female DOPs, uh, for instance, come out of the Danish film school. So it is changing. But back when I started, it was like that very much. Yeah. And did things really start to take off for you when you met Lars von Trier and how did you come to be working with him? Yeah, I actually, I, I met him after film school. I, of course, I, I knew about him. He was kind of like the big thing, right, also at that time. Um, and I met him because I, uh, a friend of mine who was educated uh, a few years before me, he needed a second editor for the TV series The Kingdom, the first uh, four episodes of that. And and um, we he knew me from film school, so he just asked me if I wanted to to join in as a second editor. So so I met uh, I met Lars in that position, and then um, from from the next film we we started working together with me as the sort of main or lead editor. And then you've done uh, Dogville with him, right? And uh, Melancholia, and then both parts of Nymphomaniac. Um, so yeah. you've, you've worked together a lot. Is it do, do film editors become very kind of dependable? And do you think and and directors like to work with the same ones because they know they're going to get a certain set of skills. I think so. I I think so. Uh, at least some directors do. He's he's very um, he's very loyal to the key workers. He the key team that he chooses. It's it's not only me that has a quite long term uh, working relationship with him. So he's he's quite loyal. But I also think that there are uh, some obvious benefits, right? You don't have to to. Uh, you don't have to invent uh, everything every time and you don't have to build trust first. I think that's something you always have to do when you start working as an editor. You have to build this trusty relationship where things are possible and you can try out things. And, and that's kind of nice that you already know each other. So I think there are some obvious benefits from from working, I think that the film that we are doing now is the tenth film that we are doing together. So it's it's over a very very long period. Yeah. Okay. So um, I kind of even these are going to be some questions that are like seem woefully obvious to you, but I think to a lot of listeners who don't know, don't get to hear from film editors much, don't know about the process. I kind of want to chart it from kind of start to finish. So when do you? enter the process is it just in post or are you still are you already part of the mix during photography i i i uh, i i think i'm 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 quite involved before the shootings and after the shootings because i i um, i quite often hear about his new idea before it's even a script and and he uh, he normally bounces his ideas on on some of the people he works with and then I read the script a couple of times and, and give notes on that. And we have a conversation about what kind of film is this. Um, and then in, in, in his case, we always start working after the shootings. A lot of editors 
start editing while uh, the director is still shooting because they think that or feel that then it's possible to catch up on things that are lost maybe. But but in our case, we prefer to, to um, start the work when he's completely done with the shootings so that we, we have a lot of conversations in the beginning of the editing periods where we kind of try to figure out together what kind of film is this. And then we create some sort of base of uh, for the work uh, and and we both find that that would be difficult if he was busy shooting and uh, we didn't have the possibility to have this very long conversations in the early phase of the work so but normally I don't go to the shootings I think it's it's uh, I find it boring to be <laughs> to be honest <laughs> yeah if you don't have something to do it's it's kind of boring and then I also think that it's it's important to me as an editor not be too influenced by what was difficult, which actor was stupid, stuff like that, because that's not interesting for the audience, so it's not interesting for me. Yeah, and it might it might influence which takes you use if you you know you remember that the filming on that day was particularly difficult or whatever. So I suppose it's better to just go in clean, just just viewing the footage. Yes. And um, so when you when you start the process, um. First, first assembly happens. They literally you're handed over all the files. Um, you say you, obviously you have lengthy discussions with the with the director. Do you then? Is it then very independent from then? And it's literally you sat with the computer putting it together, or are you doing it with the director at that point? Um, um, uh, it's it's a constant mix, right? We we I I never edit with the director uh, besides me. Because I feel that that that's like uh, trying to read a newspaper with somebody reading alongside over the shoulder. It's it's really annoying. But we normally we uh, we watch the footage, uh, some of the footage for us for a smaller sequence, a couple of scenes, and then we we uh, discuss. Uh, we in that early phase, we very often talk about character talk about of course the sort of uh, basic plot this thing that you need to tell but we talk a lot about characters and how we feel they should perform and then we talk a lot about subtext meaning uh, the things that happens and goes on to the scene that they don't say and then you cannot say right uh, if he if he uh, what is it that the characters actually mean and feel that they don't say because that's something that you have to look for when you're doing film that um because that's what the audience are good at watching and understanding this kind of human subtext right all the things that we don't put into words so we talk a lot about that and then i and then uh, i make a lot of chooses from the material i think that a lot of people think that you choose the take that is good and uh, or the the shot that is good and that's not it really you choose a lot of small bits and pieces from all over the material right and i very often have material that are somewhere between 60 and 80 hours for a two, two hour feature so it's it's uh, it's really a long selection process and then I do a first cut and he and I watches it and we discuss a few things, change a few things, and then we move on. That's sort of the first cut. I don't do an assembly. I find that too loose. We we spend quite much time on the first cut. Yeah. And when, so you have this conversation about um, how they imagine the film, the subtext, etc. Is it then your job to translate that into 
that means it's going to require really long, you know, long cuts and long takes of a, of a shot? Or are they, are they very specific about the technical elements? Or, or is it they give you a more aesthetic, poetical idea of what they want and then you work out how to make that actually happen technically? Yeah, the, 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 the last one. I think that the good directors are very good at, at giving you a strong idea about the vision that they are trying to accomplish. Right. If they just told you what to do, they might as well have done it themselves. I think that the clever directors, they know how to inspire and let you know enough so that uh, I will bring to the table uh, what I'm able to do. Right. And that goes for the other uh, key creative partners as well. So so. Um, and I think that basically what what I choose is what are you going to watch when, right? If you, if you consider that you every second have maybe uh, 50, 60, 60 possibilities of what to see, is I, I, are you going to see me talk or you react, for instance? That's a very simple uh, decision, but it's a, it's a load of decisions on detail level. And I think that uh, the good director will try to give you an idea of what what is what's the essence of this scene, and then he expects you to bring your idea of that forward. And I'm I'm kind of intrigued as to what your workstation looks like. I like to imagine like a really big screen, and you've got a really nice soundproofed office. Is that the case, or is that? It's it's I have it's it depends. I'm uh, I'm a uh, freelancer, right? So it depends on the company, but. Where Lars and I are working currently, for instance, is that's a quite big room. I'm not one of the editors that sit in darkness. It makes me too depressed, simply. So I have an open window, and then sometimes I pull down the curtain if it's hard to see. But basically, I think that you should imagine uh, something that most of, us, most of us know from when you're working with a text on a computer. But as I'm working with sound and images, I have sort of like three screens. I have one screen that looks a bit like a, uh, uh, yeah, how could you, it's, it's, it's a screen where there is a, a window from all the shots that I can choose from and a window with the things that I have chosen, right? And basically you take one, you constantly choose something and put it into the timeline of, of, of the film. And then you can uh, juggle around with picture and so sound independently, right? And then I have a big screen where I watch the result. Uh, so so it is like a, uh, I don't think that it would look so strange to most people because it's basically idea of how you work with text in a normal word document, right? It's just pictures and sounds. Yeah. Do you do any kind of basic color correction and sound editing, or do you just leave all of that and it's done left to the person? I do a lot of sound editing. I don't do color correction because that's already done when it's uh, loaded into my computer. Uh, that's uh, They have done some basic stuff, right? And then it's really worked with afterward, of course. But I do work a lot with sound of music and music. Um, I do also have a quite close collaboration with the sound designer that uh, I have in, in this case, I've been working with him for 10 years. We know each other very well. So we have a quite open collaboration that starts during the editing. 
so so I do work a lot with sound. Yeah, is it is it the case that if there are problems with some of the takes that they maybe are even unusable that you're the one that spots it because you're the first person to see whether they fit together or not? I think that basically I see it as my my task to tell the story with whatever material is there, right? Uh, so, so that's part of my creative process to to uh, accomplish that. But sometimes, of course, there's just something missing or uh, a problem with the, with the footage, and then very rarely we reshoot. Mm. And it's you that has to kind of make that call. You need to get go back to the director and say, "Look, this this scene isn't isn't working. We're going to have to do a pickup for this." Uh, normally, it's something that we figure out together, right? But but. Um, it's quite rarely, I think. It's it's often it's small stupid details like oh shit, there's no close off of that important letter, or it's stuff like that. It's it's not like uh, I think directors on his level. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. They do come home with what's needed, right? Stay tuned. We're going to say some more words after these adverts. And um, so how long does it take you typically to create an editor's cut? It's, it's, uh, I think that it's, it's very different. We have quite extended editing periods, uh, uh, with Lars von Trier's films, but I think a, a, a typical Danish feature length film would, uh, the editor would be working for something around 20, 25 weeks, all in all. And I think that I would spend like half on the first cut. And then, so then you hand that over, and hopefully they they're they're pleased. And then, from that point, do they then take it over completely, or are they kind of still bouncing thoughts back off you, and you go back and amend? No, no, no. It's not like that. The first cut is just like uh, this is our rough idea about how this film is supposed to do. Then there's a long extended work after that, still in the editing room. I don't hand things over before I'm completely satisfied together with the director. So I think that the first cut is just an idea. It's it's a qualified guess about what how this is supposed to be. And then there's a lot of re-editing, right? If think that each scene you see in the film has been re-edited like 10, 15 times at least, right? So, so there's a long process after that, but then uh, when that's finished, I have, uh, I've, I've normally you, you maybe have conversations with the uh, sound um, uh, director, but, but um, as we have a quite extended collaboration during the editing, we already know. So there's no, 
turning over stuff is not so difficult because we had all the conversations already. Uh, but normally there would be, in other cases, uh, a couple of days where you look through things and discuss the sound as well. So your your job lasts right up until the final cut. You're there right up until the end. I do the final cut, right? It's the same. I, I know that sometimes in, in... I've heard sometimes in England that they work with... You work with uh, somebody who does the final cut or... Uh, it's it's quite normal that it's shifting editors, and I must say it sounds completely weird to me. It's it's like why? It's because like, last part is so easy. It's like doing the frosting on the cake. Why leave that to somebody else, right? It's a simple pleasure, and I think that it's important that it's the same. For me, it's, it sounds very important that it's the same editor that that does all the work, right? It takes it from beginning to end and kind of have uh, the responsibility for carrying through that process yeah I, th- I guess naively maybe a lot of us assume that the director kind of completely takes control of it right at the end and makes the final tweaks themselves but that's not the case no <laughs> it's not <laughs> i think that um the clever directors they give a lot of freedom to the people that they work with because they know they will get something that they couldn't have accomplish themselves alone that's where the teamwork comes in right and on the other hand i think that we keep on working until he's satisfied so so it, it's 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 a matter of trust and uh, and that's also where the long-term relationship is is good right because he knows that he will be happy in the end and he knows he will get something good if he leaves me uh, some space during the process. Yeah, to be a good director, you need to not be controlling, don't you, and willing to trust in the talent of the people you've got around you. And know that things can be changed if you don't like them, right? So thinking about film editing more generally, um, I can't remember who said it now, but I remember listening to a film editor who said that um, a good film editing, good film editing is invisible. You essentially you don't notice it. You're just watching the film. A stand of you is watching the film and then not thinking about it. Do you, do you agree with that? I kind of agree with that. Yes, I uh, I think that I have been editing some films where the editing is quite uh, visible, actually, because in the beginning of of uh, my career with working with Lars von Trier, we we worked in a manner that was quite new, and I think people noticed because it was we worked with this idea of editing in discontinuity, right? There were a lot of small time jumps in time. And I think that the audience noticed that, and that was part of the idea that you could see that time was uh, extracted from from what you saw. But besides that, I think that it's 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 not the purpose of the editing. I, and I also also um, think that it's, in my opinion, it it's it's uh, wrong if an editor has a certain style or specific way of doing things, because I think that it's always the, the, the film that determines how things are done. And I think part of, of, uh, part of the fun work uh, as an editor is that you have to determine for each film, what, what's the language of this film? How, how is this particular film? Uh, carried out right and that's part of the process to figure out how is this film looking what's the pace of it what's uh, 
is is there some is it uh, very jumpy or staccato or, or must it be poetic and calm for instance and and if you came along with your own idea of some kind of style and just forced it onto any film you worked on that would be misunderstood i think you're kind of like a hired gun really you know you're not you're not there to stamp your own um style on something it's about adapting to other people's i think so too and i i also sometimes um if to try to make it more clear sort of um I think it's it's quite close to when a uh, a singer is singing somebody else's material, because of course there is an artistic sort of like uh, interpretation of something, right? If if uh, if a singer sings something that is not written by him or her, but still there is something right there's a there is a, i think the most important thing for me is to try to understand the essence of of this film right what's what's uh, what's the core of it and then help that forward as as much as possible this is a this is a very geeky question but um how many kind of video and audio tracks do you end up with when you're making you know a major feature film is it a lot I'm kind of, uh, uh, I, I think it's because I came so much out of dogma, uh, the Danish dogma movement, which was extremely simple technically, right? That was one video track and one audio track and clean cut. But I think that, uh, I think that some editors confuses themselves more than uh, needed, right? So I, I almost only work in, uh, one video track that I do sometimes need to to be able to do stuff right, and I do use effects and stuff like that, of course. And then I work in something like ten, twelve audio tracks normally. Right. Do you still get overwhelmed when you open up the project file and it all comes at you, and it's because it is a kind of a is a lot to visually take on, or are you so used to it now that it's just normal for you? I get more tired than overwhelmed. <laughs> The, uh, I'm not overwhelmed anymore because I've 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 been Nymphomaniac we edited for for nine months right and I had three editors working alongside with me and it was huge so somehow it it doesn't really overwhelm me anymore but I I have reached the point where I do get tired when I kind of start from one end and knows that there are like 80 hours ahead of me of, of footage and small details and a long period of first cut, right? So so uh, I think more tired than, than uh, overwhelmed. Mm. What's been your most um, challenging film to edit? Nymphomaniac, I think. And then I had uh, Duckville as well, I think, because I was, that was before I, I, um, I realized that co-editors would be a good idea, right? So I was completely on my own with that one. And it's a quite complex film, I think, Dark Will. So, so that was really a challenge as, as well. But Nymphomaniac, uh, I, uh, I think I suggest Nymphomaniac because it's also in terms of, of that particular film's language and the use of the archive stock uh, images and uh, there was a lot of, of storytelling challenges in that film I think that I loved but that was the biggest challenge I think. It's quite a lyrical film and I suppose 
it was probably quite a lot of creative decisions to be made with all the sex scenes and determining how long they should be and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that was that was not so complicated. I think the complicated thing was to get this uh, frame story. So you, I don't know if you use that term. We use a lot of English terms that have never been words in England, actually. But uh, the frame story with the two people talking about her, right? Um, I think that trying to make that live and then have the archive and then holding on to her story without being uh, detached uh, from it um, to figure out how to to uh, to be loyal and connected to a character that was doing such strange things for many people. So I think it, the challenges was more like that. The six scenes, sex scenes were pretty simple, and they were uh, a very a, a major uh, visual effect job, more than an editing job. Yeah, I really like those films. I like the and the fact that it had some humor to it, and the the kind of fishing paraphernalia that it cut away to. Yeah, it was cool. Um, so you're you've just been invited to join the academy. Yes. I, I saw that. <laughs> I, I haven't heard anything from the Academy yet, but I saw it. <laughs> I saw that apparently I was invited to join them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Yes. Yeah, and that you. means you'll be you'll be voting now in the film editing category, right? Yes. So, um, I mean, a two two kind of past the question. Do you think that film editing is like an underappreciated thing that doesn't really get talked about, but is actually a big element, or the film editor? And how will you go about voting and how, what will you be looking for in other films? Yeah, I think that uh, in terms of, of, of the respect around the trade, I think I live in a very fortunate place because I think that in Denmark it's been a very uh, respected area for many years. And I think that a lot of Danish film editors work very closely with the directors on the films and a lot of Danish editors uh, take on our other tasks. For instance, there's been a lot of commissioning edit, uh, editors at the Film Institute that came from that trade. So I don't think I've been traveling a lot and I do see that in other countries, film editors have a really hard time getting the kind of respect that the trade actually requires, I think. So, so I think that, um, I think that I would, with my background, I would be looking for for um, films where I think that the editing has been contributing in a, an extraordinary way, in the way that it's maybe told differently, or there's a, a sensitivity to it, or it can be it can be a very different elements that makes it good but I think that what annoys me at least when I watch film is that I feel that a lot of the editing looks too automatic to me it's it feels like oh this is how we do it and this is how we always done it and th this is what we do so so I I think that personally I'll be looking for somebody that uh, breaks that for for the sake of the film right that have found a, a very specific editing language that suits the film. You particularly see like really flat editing when you're looking at the over the shoulder shots and it literally goes, boom, this character. 
it has to be inspired all the way around. And I think that you can, it doesn't have to be very uh, weird or upside down or anything to be good. But I think that it's, it's quite easy to tell if it's inspired somehow. If it's if it lifts the 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 whole film, or if it's just like okay, this was needed, and I did my work, and that's it. So so I think I'll be looking for something that feels inspired and and extraordinary, which is uh, hopefully what everybody else will answer, right? The idea of what is inspired can maybe differ. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for talking to me, Molly. It was like very, really interesting. And um, good luck with the the next project. Can you talk much about that? Or? Not much. It's always very secret. But it's it's the film is called The House That Jack Built, uh, and it's uh, starring uh, Matt Dillon and Bruno Ganz. Uh, and it's it's a story about a serial killer. And it's uh, weirdly not enough very funny actually. I think that surprised me a bit during the first six weeks here. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks again. And um, yeah, best of luck. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. All right. That was my chat with Molly Stenskart. I hope it was edifying. Thanks for listening. And uh, are you following us on Twitter? That's the best way to know what's coming up. And if you uh, also have a chance to leave us a review, that really helps us a lot too. We want to get this podcast out to as many people. So all the recommendations we can get and more people we can get in the conversation the better and if you have any suggestions on you know ways we can improve or people you'd like to see on or topics you'd like to see discussed um you know drop us a line drop us an email drop us a tweet and uh, we'll do our best to to include it or answer any questions in future podcasts all right thanks and take it easy Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.